Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Underserved, the podcast for the rest of the tech industry. I'm your host, Andrew Jelina. With me today is Matt Berg, technology industry veteran. Thank you for having me, Andrew. So Matt, I wanted to talk to you a bit about, give me your earliest memory of like technology, your first time you used a computer, the first time someone showed you something cool. Sure. I All the way back, I don't know how old I was, but Sega Genesis, 16-bit cartridge. I was right after Super Nintendo. That's like just a little bit before me. Some of my friends had it, but I remember I got the Sega and it was just that much more. It was billed as better than Super Nintendo playing Sonic the Hedgehog on a terrible TV, which terrible graphics. I go back and look at that. Can't even believe it. And uh, then when we upgraded from Sega Genesis 16-bit to Sega CD, it was just a whole new world. The graphics changed. And I said, this is this is in, incredible. How, is Sega CD the Dreamcast? Before, pre. So it was an actual bolt-on to the Sega Genesis 16-bit. And the graphics, the games changed. Like, it was a whole new world. And I was, I, I thought I was the cat's meow versus the people still playing Super Nintendo in the neighborhood. So besides, like, Sonic the Hedgehog, what else were you playing? Oh, Sonic was a big one for me, but I was huge Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, and they had the game, and I still remember to this day, my friend borrowed the game. He had Sega Genesis, and I never got it back. That bastard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I'm still friends with him today, Wow! Um, but we still talk about it, how he took the game, and ultimately, he lost it, didn't know what he did with it. I would just keep sending him eBay links. It'd be like, you're, <laughs> I, you're not in the inner circle until you write this wrong. I, I've tried. I can't find it. It, it, it was my favorite game, and it's hard to find. Now, is it similar? I remember the arcade game. There was like a four-player arcade game with a you know jump and punch type buttons for each person. Exactly the same game, yes, but it was only two players. Okay, and uh, very similar. I, I, I used to play that. I, I think I originally played that game in the dentist office. They had Superman, and the second game was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He had coin op in his office. Yes, but the coin it was free, uh, so he had it. He had it fixed. It's in a rich dentist back in the day. <laughs> that well, welcome to Worcester, I guess. The children's dentist. Huh. All right. So then uh, you were in college, graduated, first job out of college, not tech industry. Correct. I uh, my family owned a sign company. And uh, when I was 13 years old, they bought this sign company. It was called Signs and Wonders. Every day after school, I was building signs. I was learning computer graphics. I was out there digging holes in the ground to put signs uh, in the ground. When I got out of college, there was my dad sold the company to this company called KG Signs. I came over, worked there for a few years in doing the same kind of role. You know, it's kind of Industry specific, not many people know how to build a sign, how to quote a sign, what it goes into it. So finding a salesperson in that realm was unique. I enjoyed it, but there is not a lot of money there. And I would imagine there's a lot of competition. I've seen sign shops in any town over 20,000 people. Yes. to be a sign shop and a green printing slash embroidery shop. There's always someone who could underbid you, ultimately. So if you went in, gave a quote, you go to the, you know, Joe Schmo sign company down the street, they would, you know, undercut your price and then you would go back and, you know, it was a a vicious cycle. Wasn't fun. I didn't feel like I was delivering quality on a regular basis. Race to the bottom. All Mm -hmm. right. So where'd you go from there? Then my uncle, when I talked about, you know, kind of next stage of my life, like I I had a girlfriend at the time, you know, where I was, I didn't think that it was going to be, I I wasn't going to be there forever. I didn't 
truly enjoy it. He worked for a company called Modus, and they were an IT staffing company. And I interviewed there. It was an hour and 15-minute commute on average from my house to the office, uh, but I thought it was worth it in the long run. I was lucky now that I look back on it uh, from a staffing industry perspective to work for a company that only specialized in doing IT versus a lot of folks I've met in the industry who've done accounting and general labor, whatever it is. Uh, I never had to kind of cut my teeth and, and work on those type of positions and sell that type of service. I worked with technology specialists all day and hiring managers who were in the software and the tech infrastructure, wherever it was, and was successful. Now, how did you kind of learn about the technology skill sets that you were selling? It's a great question. So working for, so at the time, the company I worked for had a very good training program. Uh, they were the largest staffing company in the world at the time. The IT branch had 70 offices in the United States, and we got to go to di different offices on a regular basis, do training programs for uh, offices who specialized in specific technologies. So I was always taught, you got to learn what you sell. So I tried my best to dig in, not be having a big technology background into to figure out what these people were doing, what software development was, what, what a help desk person even does. Besides, usually when I get a call and I call someone and get angry on the phone because they can't help me, you know, <laughs> what is that person really doing? And uh, it's a great experience to get a very large, you know, kind of casting a large net of different technologies, different services, different industries all in one. So it was, a, it was, it was I, I think I was lucky to fall into a company like that at the time. I've met a lot of people who have been in different industries in the staffing world, and it's it's a real grind. It still is, but in technology, at least some of the stuff, uh, learning about a company and what they're doing and figuring out that you helped place a developer or someone who contributes to a product that you actually use was fun. From your perspective, you strike me as someone that would be in sales. You know, you're gregarious. You'd like people. You're not afraid to kind of make that initial, hey, how you doing with strangers? You build a rapport. You can talk about the industry as well as just, you know, golf or whatever and get people to kind of talk to you. What's it like dealing with folks that are technologists who tend to be a lot more introverted or would prefer chat or email over speaking? What's, what's that like from your side? It was originally a challenge because you would, when I was selling anything, signs, whatever it was, you know, it was asking about the Patriots or asking about the sports team, you know, type deal. You kind of, I'm one of those people who is interested in a lot of different things. I've never been great or an expert in one thing, but known a lot about different things that are going on. So you're dealing with people in technology. I think it's really finding similar interests. And thankfully, I do have some of those interests with sci-fi, you know, video games, whatever it is, to talk to someone who's not about what they're doing as a software developer. Because mostly, if I'm asking, you know, what do you do on a regular basis? They know that I'm not a software developer. I'm really just scraping the surface. And it's not a good conversation from their side. I may think it is on my side, but to be able to get some of their interest and kind of deal with them personally rather than biz on the business side, that's what I found successful. All right. So one of the ones that I expected least for you to have in common with a hiring manager came up recently. What about raising chickens? <laughs> uh, so I grew up just outside the city of Worcester. Wasn't quite country, but you know, I went to high school in the city of Worcester. I was not a country person. I did not have chickens growing up. I had pets and things growing up. I've always been someone who's been drawn to the the country lifestyle. 
having a farm. I think one of my ultimate life goals is to have a working farm in some way, shape or form, whether it's even just an apple farm or something with something along those lines. I bought a house. The house had a chicken coop. And I am someone who is not as I don't think things through all that often. <laughs> I just do. Sometimes you just have to jump into things and, and figure it out. And the chicken coop was there. I think my upfront cost was somewhere around $35 to get the chicken, some food and all the, the stuff I would need, like a heat lamp to let the chickens grow because they first had to start in the basement. I just went for it. And so now I have chickens. Huh. What's the chicken learning curve like? Like you have to feed the feed them, keep them well, keep them warm, avoid predators. So there were as much as I would like to say it's it complex and there's a lot that goes into it, it's really not. Chickens have been around forever, living in the wild. They know how to survive. Um, the first thing usually people ask me is like, what do you do in the winter? Do you put a heater in there? Do you put a heat lamp? I do put a heat lamp when it gets below zero degree. Uh, I have found that they are hardy and they can survive a lot of different weather as long as they have an enclosure. So it's really, I, I feed them. I keep fresh water. That seems to be the biggest thing. Keep fresh water, uh, clean their coop and let them live. And I get the eggs out of it. I really like set it and forget it. So to the other side of this, the reason I mentioned it is one of our clients, one of the managers there happens to live kind of partway out in the sticks mm -hmm. and has a whole bunch of chickens and a farm. And you guys end up talking about that, which I was <laughs> definitely surprised by. Um, and you're not the only ones I've met um, from my one of my daughter's soccer teams, you know, a couple of the parents have 24 chickens in like Hopkinton. And uh, there's not so much uh, like back to the earth, but, you know, some people like getting back in touch with the roots or, you know, enjoying some of the benefits of living in a more rural or suburban area. And it seems like a lot of the communities now you see those right to farm signs and you see more gardens and this sort of thing popping up and all the way to some folks in the tech industry are preppers. And they're like, uh Oh, what if, you know, the poop ever hit the fan, you know, would I be able to uh, live and survive? And, you know, so they want to learn these skills. So surprisingly, uh, the person you're talking about, the manager, does is not the first person I've come across in the tech industry who has had chickens, has chickens, something along those lines. It's the same thing for me. I, I was shocked when I did it and found out that there were so many other people, even in Boston, like downtown Boston, there's specialty companies that set up uh, livestock and, and chicken coops that are specific to like very small areas. And people do this and they have chickens uh, just because it's, it's, I think it's, there's a little bit of fun. Uh, they're not quite pets, but they kind of contribute to your your life. I have a younger son and uh, a wife who's pregnant again, and eggs are one of the best things. And to have farm fresh eggs readily available at any time. Uh, also, going back to when I bought the house in the chicken coop, it was a great way to meet and meet and talk to my neighbors. I went around and said, "I have an unbelievable amount of eggs. I didn't realize six chickens would give me six eggs a day. I cannot eat six eggs a day." And uh, so I was giving eggs away to uh, all the neighbors in the area. So they come over with egg cartons and we talk and they're like, oh, this is so great. The eggs are so fresh. It's 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 just an awesome experience. I've also got great desserts out of it, too. They'll make me egg-based desserts. I've got a flan that they're like, oh, you gave me some eggs and I wanted to return them with, you know, it's a flan. It was, it was awesome. Oh, that's cool. Chickens seem like, you know, a somewhat useful pet. Like my, my three dogs don't produce much other than uh, fur and uh, stuff to pick up after and, of course, love. But I pictured, 
you know, I see people with a big dog in the city and I'm like, how do you get him walked enough and exercised enough and hang out with him enough when you're at work and you have to hire a dog walker? And I can't imagine like having chickens in the city too. I can't either. I'm not a big fan of city living itself. It's just not, doesn't fit my personality. I want a little space. I have a big dog. I don't think keeping a big dog in an apartment, none. People do it and they figured out a good way to do it, but I, I don't know how they would do chickens as well because there's a lot of factors. There's smells that come from having livestock like chickens that you have to keep up on that. And if you're in a close environment, um, I'm very conscious. I have neighbors who are around me, I'm, you know, and I want to make sure that they're not bothering them. And I can't imagine how someone would do that in the city. Maybe that'll be the next adventure. Now, speaking of bothering, is it just the roosters that do all the crowing and you have only hens or how does that work? So you would think so. Yes. The roosters do primarily the crowing. I had six hens. Now I only have five and they are, they can be noisy. They balk. They, uh, they are, I, I let them free range. They're in my neighbor's yards. I talked to the neighbors about it and they were fine with it. They take care of all the, the ticks and mosquitoes in the area. So it, it's kind of an added benefit to the neighborhood as well. But yes, they can be noisy, especially when they think there's danger or something along the lines that's going to scare them. And they're, they're, <laughs> they're making it a lot of noise. But yes, the rooster is the one who primarily is very, very vocal at all times. So folks, if you uh, own chickens or <laughs> livestock and are in the tech industry, I, I kind of want to hear about you know how common this is. So if you want to drop us an email at underserved at searings.com or hit me up on Twitter, I am at sign Andrew Gelina, Andrew G-E-L-I-N-A. But let's get back to more, you know, directly technology. So you, you left the staffing firm to join more of a consulting firm. What would you say was the difference? What was the drive and what's it been like since doing so? So when I was working for the staffing firm, a lot of the, the approach I took was providing quality. Um, there's just like in the side industry, there is a thousand staffing companies that you can go to. And truthfully, I felt that I, when I was trying to sell value, they were getting the same pitch from every other staffing firm that was out there and saying, we can find qualified people for you. We know how to find them. We have the database, we have the network. And ultimately behind the scenes, it was people scrambling, you know, finding new candidates, trying to vet them as best as they could, not having a technology background. And I saw a gap there between delivering the message, you know, being able to deliver on the message that I was selling and presenting to uh, hiring managers who were ultimately struggling because the lack of tech talent in the area is is staggering. So the time it takes to find the right person uh, can be a daunting task for a lot of managers because they're getting resumes that are they real? How do I know this person is vetted? What are they doing? Does it relate to what I'm doing? You have to go through the interview process. And by the time you get through that, it's a lot of time out of a, a manager's day, especially if they're trying to deliver something. When I left to look for something else, I found a you know consulting company that specifically had developers in-house who were helping vet candidates, who were helping just really deliver that quality that I was already selling, but really didn't have uh, the substance for. Uh, so working alongside software developers who are actually doing development, being able to ask them questions, being able to dive in, grab them for a call to understand what's really going on. That's, that was the other thing. I, I would get on the phone with the manager and I, I would have to kind of try to figure out the technology and what was happening because we didn't have in-house experts. Now I do. 
and it, it makes my life easier. It makes my message really ring true. And I stand behind and, and feel very confident. And when I'm uh, speaking to a manager or a company that I can deliver the quality and it makes me happy to be able to do that. Very cool. Now, when you first arrived there, they had like a two day boot camp where you're learning all about technology and you know, you mentioned you were a mile wide and an inch deep. This maybe took you a little deeper on some things. What was that like? Eye-opening. And I would say overwhelming as well. Interacting with a software developer who's trying to de describe technology and how it works to a salesperson is no easy task. So seeing how things work, seeing actual code, I don't know in all my years in technology, I've actually ever seen a line of code until I started at this consulting firm. So it was very, very eye-opening. It made me have a passion to learn more about what, what software development really was and how I used it in my everyday life. And from that two-day boot camp, it, it, uh, it was eye-opening to see how what developers were doing to deliver a product, something I use every day. I think we, we used Google Maps and how that worked. And was it JSON code and, and uh, the speed rate? It was too much. <laughs> I was like, there's a lot that goes into the regular Google map I pull up that I get upset with if it doesn't work in 15 seconds. Uh, what would you say is one of the kind of stereotypes or things that you hear about folks that are in sales that is just not true? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I've seen it all. I, the stereotype of salesperson is, uh, I think whenever anyone thinks of sales, they think of the car salesman. And um, folks, there are people in the sales profession who act like car salesmen, who want to push you. Uh, who want to do that high pressure sale and get you to sign on the dotted line. And it's all about closing deals. I would say that with technology, even that's changed to where you have to be different. You have to provide value. The consumer, the manager, whoever it is, is, is they're able to find information to back up what you're saying. So you, you have to have a good message and you have to provide that value and build trust almost immediately. It, it takes a while to build real trust, but to have a comfort with the person you're speaking with that they're not just trying to get you to sign on the dotted line. I think that's a good salesperson. That's what I strive for every day. But the stereotype of the used car salesman is it's out there. It happens. So the people in this industry, in the software industry, people in all different industries, they, they have that mentality. So I would say, you know, you're dealing with a good salesperson when you feel a, a, a trust almost immediately that they, what they're selling to you, they've taken the time to understand your needs. But, uh, the stereotype of a used car salesman is there. I've met a lot of those people. <laughs> yeah, and I'd say that developers are definitely a wary bunch, you know, of sales folks. These people seem to have a different personality type. There's definitely the used car sales thing that pops up for a lot of people, and they may be kind of intimidated to interact with them. I'll say, though, one of the best things I did when I was uh, back at Monster.com I met, ended up meeting a bunch of sales folks and they just give you such a different perspective on things. Like I mostly hung around with almost all developers before that. Um, ended up meeting my wife there, who was uh, one of the top salespeople at Monster. Met a bunch of interesting folks who I've stayed in touch with, sometimes worked with in the years since. And it's just, uh, it's a different way of looking at things. And But there is one thing that I found that the salespeople have in, in common with the developers that I didn't expect, and it's needing to have an extreme amount of persistence. So the developers, when you're working on a technical problem and you're grinding on it and you're just not finding a solution and you're Googling and you're stack overflowing and you have to try a bunch of things in order to just come up with something that is going to work, solve this problem and let you move forward in your project, 
I see the sales folks having to do the same sort of thing. Like, all right, how am I going to find someone at this company to, you know, A, at what we call the elusive time of need? You know, do they actually need something right now or do I need to stay in touch over a period of months or sometimes years to even have that come up, to be able to build that trust, to be able to consistently deliver the message, hey, here's what we're doing. And most of the managers you're talking to are absolutely barraged by folks trying to sell them one thing or another. So trying to rise above that din, come up with something that's slightly different, um, you know, that perks up their ears. Or even catching them live on the phone. I mean, almost no one answers their phone these days. Some people don't even have a phone. They just use their cell phone for work, but don't publish the number outside their company. You know, and having to be persistent and follow through and do things over and over and over again to get to a long-term goal. I think there's somewhat of a stereotype that salespeople can have a, a short-term payoff. I, you know, how's my month? How's my quarter? Mentality only when really that sort of persistence is what's necessary for, especially where there's a longer sales cycle. I would agree. How it's best described to me is, you know, again, you can focus on the short term, but you're always going to be chasing your tail. One of the best advice I, I think I ever got in the sales industry was sales is like a bank. You got to keep making deposits so you can pull something out. If you don't have enough deposits, then you're not going to have any money to take out when it's time. The time of need is a big thing. Yes, that happens a lot, but the only way that you can find people in the time in, in the right at the right time is you have to keep in contact with them. You have to start building that relationship. Uh, very rarely do you actually get someone right at the right exact time who wants to buy what you're selling. So you have to keep making deposits into that bank every day. Underserved is fortunate to be sponsored by Syrinx, the developer-founded, developer-run software consulting company. Syrinx provides bolt-on software development capacity to accelerate your software projects. Syrinx works with your team and your methodology, on-site or off-site, to deliver on-time and on-budget. They work in any technology stack. React, Angular, Java, .NET, Python, front-end, back-end, NoSQL, MySQL, any SQL you can come up with. They have experts. You need architects, developers, QA folks, project managers, analysts, data scientists. Syrinx can help everywhere in the software development lifecycle anywhere in the United States. Syrinx also does complete outsourced software project development if you need a turnkey end-to-end -end solution or if you just need an individual resource to fill a development gap. With 100% of their resources onshore and a 20-year track record of success, you can trust Syrinx to get it right the first time. You can reach them today at Syrinx.com or 888-579-7469. That is 888-5-Syrinx. Expand your software development bandwidth at S-Y-R-I-N-X.com. Besides like a CRM and Excel and Outlook and the stuff that everyone uses, like what's a piece of technology you use? either for work or personally, that you like, thank God that you have? I would say there are a number of tools out there who, uh, for instance, Zoom Info. If I did not have that tool readily available to me, uh, it's one of those things that I look back and I don't know how I did my job before I had Zoom Info. It allows you to look up numbers, look up email addresses. Um, a lot of times, just being in the industry, as long as I've been, you know who the right people to, to reach out to are. You know how to get in touch with them. And yes, you can reach out via LinkedIn and maybe that works. Again, a lot of different people are doing different things, but you can grab that contact information right away and be able to craft a message because you've spent the time to understand what that company's needs are and something that's very targeted to them. It's been invaluable 
What would you say is something that you were frustrated by or confused by with technology? A lot. I, I think understanding that our whole world now is run on lines of code, something that I can't see, something that I can't get my hands on and fix or if something goes goes wrong is uh, I've always been someone who wants to get their hands dirty and uh, be able to fix this, whether it's working on a car engine or uh, fixing pieces of the house, fixing electrical stuff, you know, rewiring things. And I can't do that in the the digital world. I can't fix a glitch in my phone. I can't fix my computer. It has to go to someone else, it has to go to an engineer. So I am baffled by the technical expertise it takes to solve a, a very simple problem on the computer because it's just, it's it's a little bit beyond me. Yeah, the, the tech stacks now too, like if you really break it down, like even just using your phone, like it's a touchscreen computer with a radio in it that can talk to both cellular towers and Wi-Fi, use TCP IP to send a ton of data back and forth, and then protocols on top of that, like HTTP and payloads of JSON. And, you know, the, it, there's a just such a large amount of complexity. I, even as a technologist, understands how all those stacks work. I'm sometimes amazed that they work at all. You know, people joke there's there's nothing like slow technology is worse than no, worse than no technology. You know, when, you, when your phone <laughs> I downloads. I would agree with that. <laughs> when your phone downloads are slow, you're like, why is this? This is terrible. This is so annoying. But, you know, and, and if you're just cut off, you're like, no, all right, no signal. I'll, I'll go about my life. Being 32 and living through the dial-up modem, and I think about my kids now who are never going to have to experience that. Uh, when I had to read a report or download something and someone would pick up the phone, and I'd already been waiting for 10 minutes to get this one document to download. And seeing now when I have like 4G instead of LTE and I get pissed off about it because it's not downloading in the 30 seconds instead of the 10 seconds it usually takes. Uh, it's funny. I reminisce about that. I'm sure a million people have talked about that before, but it's, it is when you actually step back from your job and think about how you used to live and just going to school and doing school versus now it's, it's a, there's a lot of change. What would you say your favorite app is now? You have an iPhone, right? Correct. My favorite app, Instagram. I mean, it's a simple one to talk about, but it, being able to take a look at my interests on a regular basis, readily available when I have downtime, when I'm, you know, doing something that's a little bit boring and be able to just flip through and be like, oh, uh, my buddy John's at this lake or there's a news story, you know, because I follow all the news stations and ESPN or the trade came through to have that quickly available because a lot of time during the day, my free time is, you know, a couple of minutes. That's, I guess, is my favorite. Kind of a cop-out, I guess, Instagram. No, I mean, it, it's extremely popular, but I, I'd say it's also generational. Mm -hmm. you know, you're a little bit younger than me, and I would say you're more like sweet spot Instagram. I think, you know, some older folks like me maybe started out on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if I go back and look, I have a low user ID on Facebook. <laughs> I think I joined in like, as soon as they let people who weren't college students join. Um, so, so I've been on, I've been on there a long time. I check it, you know, fairly frequently, a couple times a day. I, one thing I've done though, I don't know if you, I'll ask you what your notification scheme is, mm -hmm. but I've turned off notifications for just about everything, even texting. I have like two apps that I allow them to notify me and I keep everything else turned off on my phone. What about you? It's a good topic because uh, I talk about a lot of people with this. I'm one of the few people who still has email notifications going on my phone. It sometimes can be overwhelming when I get all of a sudden 50 messages for and weeding through what I need. Um, another person I work with, I think you talked to him last week, Colin does not do that. And he sees me 
looking at the notifications on my on my lock screen all the time and doesn't understand how I do it. I think I have a little FOMO of, of not being able to see stuff instantly as it comes in. So I need to know right away. But yes, there's a, I don't have a personal email, no notifications, Facebook, no notifications, Instagram, no notifications, because I don't want to be chasing that because you can spend the whole day just looking at stuff that pops up on your phone. So email, text is still there. Phone is still there. Those are the three things I have notifications left. My wife's not terribly enthused with my lack of notifications, <laughs> especially on text. Yes. Um, I don't know how you do that, actually. That would be, that would hurt me, I think, to have to open your phone to look at text messages and not see them come directly, like immediately be able to look at them. Um, It's one of those cut the cord type things where you just make the decision and you do it and then you live with the fallout. I just noticed that I had so many notifications coming through. And they just, my phone would be buzzing if it would, I almost always leave it on vibrate or, you know, just interrupting things constantly. And so I started paring them down and then I started saying, do I really need to know that? Or, you know, I'll, I'm going to look at my phone, you know, once an hour anyways, at least. So I, it's kind of a habit for my development days when I would go on programming jags and spend three or four hours doing something and not want to be interrupted because I was in the flow. I was in a very productive state where I was able to concentrate on something. And the same sort of thing will happen now, you know, even though doing what I'm doing isn't always programming, just being able to kind of concentrate and be in that flow state. I find that the notifications make you feel more like you're on constant interrupt. And it's there's a thing in computing they call thrashing, where if a CPU has so many things to do, if you try to give it nine tasks, it spends t- so much time like switching in between the tasks and being interrupted by one or another that it never actually gets anything done. I feel like that. That's, I guess that's how, just how people work differently. I would agree. A lot of the notifications, they, I, I, I'll catch myself a lot of times. I'll be typing an email on my computer and get a notification on my phone of another email that comes in and switch to typing an email on my phone and interrupt the other email that I was actually typing. I have to stop myself. And that that is something I'm challenged with. Or if it's a text message, I stop my email and and answer the text message. I feel I have to answer the text message right away because that's just the the way I've been programmed right now. Um, But I also operate really well in chaos. And when there's a lull time when I just have to stop and think about something, my mind tends to wander and I need the other influence coming in. I need the the phone vibrating to, to almost focus myself on the task that I'm doing and know that I have three more things to do after that. They're just sitting on my phone. And so when I can do that, when I can focus on what I'm doing, but still know that stuff's happening, I, I feel I'm very productive at that point. Little little strain, but. No, I, I would say that your the way you are is probably more typical for folks that are in sales, recruiting, probably customer service, where you're interacting with other humans a lot as part of your job and not necessarily hunkering down on a laptop and banging out code. And even, you know, Skype and instant messaging and stuff, I find myself turning that stuff off once in a while or just, so I actually have a development desktop now and I don't have email or anything installed on it. I have that on another computer that I'll RDP to. And I'll just close the RDP window <laughs> and just completely ignore it for a while and just not even connect to it. And that's where Skype and my mail and everything are. And I'll just try to get rid of as many distractions as I can in order to concentrate on something. So I think that's kind of one of the different strokes, different folks things. I mean, back, sense. back in the day, I was what you might call an inbox zero guy. 
Like when I was at Monster, I tried to have zero messages in my inbox. I either deleted everything, read it and filed it in a subfolder or did something with it and then deleted it. Like I, you know, nowadays, like, you know, everyone, oh, you must retain your emails in case there's a legal hold and whatever. There's, the rules are different. But yeah, I always tried to have an empty inbox at the end of the day. Now, it's if I have everything marked red, I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> And uh, I know what you mean by the constant interrupt. I, I've definitely had it happen where I'm like, oh, I got to go on my phone and I'm, I'm going to go put a note in Evernote or something. And then I'll go to do that. But when I open up my phone, there's a notification from my email or text or something, and I'll have to do that. And by the time I get done doing those things, I'm like, why did I even open my phone in the first place? I think it's kind of hard to to unwind the stack or keep adding to it, at least in my case. I think that uh, I tend to be more single-threaded, like I want to concentrate on one thing and uh, get it done. But I know there's, you know, they've done some studies on notifications and how they're kind of like a slot machine. They're variable feedback delivered to you randomly over time, and it releases dopamine in your brain. And I think you get kind of addicted to this. I've seen people that cannot stop checking their social media, their Facebook, and you know, they've, oh, did I get a new like? Like, I put my new photo up. Oh, did I get over 500? And the, the amount the kids do it is just amazing to me. I mean, one of my daughters has, I think, over a 1,000 Instagram followers. And, you know, she'll get 500 likes sometimes on a photo. And she's very careful about how she brands herself on Instagram. And there's different rules on what you put on Instagram versus Visco versus Snapchat. I'm, I'm probably going to do one of these episodes just to talk to her and what the social media landscape is like for a kid these days. So something I've noticed, I, I still drive. Uh, my commute's about 50 miles each way. I drive by a lot of people. I'm stuck in traffic with a lot of people on a regular basis. The amount of people who are taking Instagram photos while they're driving, taking videos. I don't know if you've seen this. I'm, you have daughters. The hair flip to do an Instagram story, I see that three to five times a day on someone stuck in traffic. Combined with the duck face or Yes, no? yes. Combined with the duck face every now and then. Now, I, I'm, I'm not one of those people who has, you know, locks their phone down when they're driving. I'm trying to do better now that I have kids uh, to not use your phone while you're driving because it is, uh, it's definitely dangerous. But I'm not a person who is taking videos of myself while I'm driving, posting updates, time to rise and grind, ready to work. It's, <laughs> it's, it's probably something that just passed me by generationally, but it's, uh, it, it's a little strange to see on, and it's uh, every day, every day. So I'll have to keep more of a lookout and I'll admit that, you know, I, I've got a Tesla with autopilot. I'll turn that on. And then, you know, assuming that everything's okay around me, I'll start kind of looking at what are other drivers doing, mm -hmm. especially if I'm in traffic and things creeping. And I have noticed a lot of video watching Mm -hmm. Just a little alarming. Yes. Uh, but I hadn't noticed the video making. Yes. I'll have to I'll have to keep an eye out for that. So the Facebook story and the Instagram story, that's what it is. It's, you know, and then I, I, I can almost see that four to five pictures right away or a short video clip. And then you can see that they're texting whatever they're going to post on their story. And it's it's it, it's scary to see even while we're driving. That is a little bit frightening. I'm somewhat surprised that the insurance folks haven't started because they're the ones who suffer from this financially, you know, mm -hmm. probably the most that they haven't started pushing for on their apps, something where you agree to have everything muted or in car mode or text to speech or hands-free while you're in the car, almost like, it's almost like you need some sort of 
black box that you can put your phone in and it stays in there and you can't touch it, but it can tell you things audibly or you can answer the phone or whatever. Bluetooth still works, but you agree not to touch it as part of driving and you get a lower rate from that or something. So I think it's kind of happened. I mean, if you don't know, we're doing a lot of work in the telematic space and with vehicles and I've seen advertisements. I've seen different uh, vehicles who offer like a teenage lock. So when they go on the phone, you can, you know, the phone's basically shut off for text and calls while you're in the phone. It's a feature. Um, I think Ford does it now. That's probably the least of the problems. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with them receiving a call yes. versus, you know, shooting a video for Instagram. I agree. Because you, you see all the ad, ads for don't text and drive. What about don't Instagram and drive or don't Facebook and drive? It's, and it, you know what? It's not even Instagram and Facebook. It's probably Snapchat. That's the one that everyone's doing uh, very frequently. And that's something that passed me by as well, Snapchat. I think, you know, bringing up Tesla again, that full self-driving cannot get here fast enough. When you think about that, I agree. You know, then fine, go do all that. You know, the the car is driving itself. It's making sure that, you know, you're not doing anything dangerous. If you want to take selfies or whatever, fine. But I've seen some people prematurely over-relying on Tesla's autopilot feature. And, you know, you, you see these things every once in a while on Reddit where someone either they staged it or they actually appear to be asleep at the wheel while on autopilot. Or uh, I think there was a story about some guy that got absolutely hammered and turned on autopilot to drive him home. And the cops ended up pulling over the car while it was on autopilot. And they had to put one police car in front of it and one police car beside it and slowly kind of virtually shove the car into the wow. breakdown lane because when they put one car in front of it, the autopilot said, oh, slow car, I'm going to pass it. And it changed lanes <laughs> to try and evade the cops. So it's not quite there yet, but people have been over-relying on it. And you know, Elon Musk has said, uh, oh yeah, by the end of 2020, FSD will be out and we'll have a fleet of robo-taxis as well. We'll take all those Model 3s that are coming in off leases and turn on the autopilot and have them grinding out money for you or us. Oh, well, actually, yeah, for that, that point, it would be for Tesla. Um, he's actually even tried to make the point that a Tesla is an appreciating asset because if you have full self-driving, once it becomes available, that car is going to be worth many times what you paid for it because it could go and participate in the robo-taxi fleet and make you money while you're not actually driving. So I could commute to Needham tell the car, go robo-taxi for the day, and then come back and get me so that I can drive home. Wow. That's, talk about a twist. <laughs> An appreciating value asset for a car. I don't think that, those words have never been said together. That's. <laughs> not, not usually, you know, unless you have like, uh, you know, one of the original uh, Shelby race cars or something like that. Yeah, a lot of people have called BS on this um, and said, you know, I, I don't know if that'll happen. And then he's kind of countered with, yeah, actually, we're going to raise the prices of Teslas. Like once this is a regular thing and you can count on full self-driving being there, it's no longer speculative. Like it's a thing. Like these things are going to cost many times what they do now. I think it might be a bluff in order to get you to buy a Model 3 now. I, bet, I better buy one now. Used car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> New car salesman, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, Matt. Well, we're uh, creeping up on 45. So I wanted to thank you for joining us today on Underserved. And uh, any parting comments or technology thoughts? Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a fun experience to get behind the mic. Parting thoughts. Don't take for granted the software developer that you know, because they are very valuable to your everyday life.
They're an appreciating asset. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you.